May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. I'm delighted to be with you on this Lord's Day afternoon. Our gospel text for today will come from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. So please be looking for it in your copy of the Bible, or you can follow along in the worship order that is before you. As you know, we have been walking through the Gospel of John, and we have just spent the past several weeks with Jesus at the temple celebrating the Feast of Tabernacles. And there we learn that Jesus is the light of the world and that he is the Lord and the giver of the water of life. And then last week, just as he was making his way out of the temple, at the end of that Feast of Tabernacles, he declared himself to be the good shepherd of the sheep. Well, this week we're going to continue with that motif of Jesus as the shepherd and his people as the sheep, but we're entering into a different feast, and this feast is called the Feast of Dedication. The most important thing we're going to do today is we're going to tackle the question that nags every one of you and everyone I have ever known who professes to be a Christian, and that nagging question, although it gets asked in many different ways, is simply this. The question is, can I lose my salvation? And the question is not intended to say, do I have permission to do it, but rather, do I have the ability to do it? Does the potential exist for me to lose my salvation? And we're going to get into answering that question in this text in just a moment. But before we answer that question, we need, we need to deal with a few other things that are in this story. And so we want to read the story, pay attention to the context of the answer Jesus gives to this very pressing question. So if you're willing and able, I invite you to stand and listen to God's holy word. And may God give you the grace to hear the voice of the good shepherd in his word. The word of God reads... At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one." The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, then even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father." 
Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. He went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. The word of the Lord. May God bless the reading, the preaching, and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. The story takes place at the time of the Feast of Dedication. And so that you will understand the backdrop against which Jesus says these things, let me fill you in on the importance of the Feast of Dedication. About 200 years before Jesus walked through Solomon's porch, the Greeks stormed into the land of Judea and they overthrew the city of Jerusalem. Antiochus Epiphanes was the leader of the Greeks who did that. They went in and desecrated the temple. They offered the sacrifice of pigs on the altar. They planted trees so that they could worship their gods in the temple. They told the Jews that they could not circumcise their children any longer on pain of death. And the motive behind that was if we prevent the Jews from circumcising their children, their religion and their way of life will come to an end. They burned their holy books and prevented people from teaching and preaching God's word on pain of death. There were devout Jews who continued to do this. Women presented their children for circumcision. People circumcised them, men circumcised them, and continued preaching God's word. And for their works, for their efforts, the Greeks destroyed them. Women were executed with their infants hanging around their necks. The people who performed the act of circumcision and preached the word were also executed. The Greeks were making the point that they wanted to put an end to the Jewish people, to their religion, to their way of life. A few years went by and some brothers who were valiant decided to rally the people of God who were devout and form an army and revolt against the Greeks. And so they gathered valiant men with the weapons they could find and it was a meager army and they went out to fight against the Greeks for their people on behalf of their God. And they prayed that God would deliver them and God did deliver them. In one crucial battle, they fought against five or a larger army than themselves and they slew 5,000 of the Greeks. The leader of the Greek army was so terrified at the valiant fighting of the Jews that he took his army and fled. Judas Maccabees and his brothers then went into the city and went up to the temple that had been desecrated and they wept over the desecration and all the things that they saw in the temple. And then they made it their effort, their project to cleanse the temple, to prepare it for worship and to dedicate themselves and the temple to God once again. They found priests who understood the law, who rebuilt the temple, the altar, who cleaned the courts, who brought God's word back, who began to preach and teach once again. And they finally held a celebration that they called the Feast of Dedication. And they said, from this time forward, let us celebrate this Feast of Dedication. 
in remembrance of this time and of this day. It was for all intents and purposes the Independence Day of the Jewish people. It was their 4th of July that they were celebrating because it was on that day and at that time that they sparked a revolution that ended up driving the Greeks out and allowed them to restore religion and life in their land. Jesus went up to Jerusalem along with the rest of the Jewish people to celebrate their independence from the Greeks. This is not a religious holiday. It was not a holiday that you're going to find in the Old Testament, but it was a holiday that they kept carefully, that they kept with great devotion year after year because it was in this holiday that they remembered that God was with them once again and delivered them from the hands of their enemies. Now what the crowds had no way of knowing, what the religious leaders had no way of knowing, is that when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem on this day, he shows up as the true and better Judas Maccabees. He is coming to a temple that has been desecrated by God's people. To people who have brought the idols of the culture in their hearts into the temple. And Jesus comes to consecrate the temple, to consecrate the people, to restore true and better worship to God. And yet he is met with resistance each and every step of the way. The people have turned the celebration of independence from the Greeks into a kind of independence from God. They no, no longer need him. They have their flags. They've got their hymns. They've got their promises to make. And yet Jesus comes as the true and better deliverer to bring them out of this situation back to the Lord. Now, you would expect the people on this day to be celebrating their independence, the celebration of light overcoming darkness, the celebration of captives overthrowing their captors. But 180 years have passed since that day, and, and you know as well as I do that things that happened in the past, while they may give you a day off of work because it's a national holiday, all of the blood, sweat, and tears spilled to give you that day fade to the background. And so they've got other things on their mind. And what's on their mind is this guy Jesus who keeps showing up. And every time he comes, he brings trouble with him. And he's stirring up trouble among the people. And so they want to know who Jesus is and what he is doing. And they say this very strange thing. How long will you hold our soul in suspense? How long will you keep our life in suspense? How long are you going to dangle us in the air? Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? They just want him to say yes or no. And it's not because they want to believe in him. It's because they want to know from his mouth whether they will have legal right to execute him. And up to this point, they're not sure. That's part of the reason why they haven't really thrown the stones that they pick up. Jesus' answer is simply, I did tell you, but you didn't believe me. I did tell you. By this point, they should know that Jesus is the shepherd king. He is the divine savior of the people. He is the Christ, the son of God. But they can't quite get their minds around it. So Jesus says, here's how I told you. I didn't use words. I used my works. I used my works. I showed you with my works that I am the Christ. As we just heard in our scripture reading from Ezekiel 34, 
Ezekiel said through the prophet about himself, God said through the prophet Ezekiel about himself, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. He goes on to say, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey. And I will judge between sheep and sheep. And I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Jesus shows up at the Feast of Dedication claiming to be the good shepherd, claiming to be the true and better shepherd of the people, meaning that he is claiming to be the true and better David who rules as king over his flock. And to give proof and evidence for that, Jesus points to all of the works that he has done. All of those things that God said through Ezekiel that he would do, Jesus shows up and he's been doing. So let me refresh your memory. When he called Nicodemus to life, he was acting as the good shepherd. And when he gave living water to the Samaritan woman beside the well, he was acting as the good shepherd. And he was acting as the good shepherd when he healed the nobleman's son, and when he healed the lame man, and when he fed the crowds with bread and fish, and when he gave blind man new eyes. He was even acting as the good and faithful shepherd when he drove the money changers from the temple. And he will act as the good and faithful shepherd again when he calls Peter, who will wander away from him and despair of life when he calls Peter back into the sheepfold from the lake. So Jesus is in this story as the true and better prophet, the true and better priest, the true and better king. He even appears in this story as the true and better God in the flesh, which is ultimately what gets him in trouble with these religious leaders. Jesus says to them, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now this is good news. This statement should ring as good news in the ears of everyone who hears Jesus speak these things. He is claiming at this moment to do for his people what no other king has been able to do, what no other shepherd of the people has been able to do. No other king could keep his people in the garden. No other king could keep his people in the promised land. No other king could keep his people at the temple. All those other kings who came before failed. And God's people were driven out of the garden, destroyed in the wilderness, carried away into exile. One king after another failed. And yet Jesus comes and says, I am not like those kings. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice. I take them in my hands and they will never perish. Jesus is claiming that under the protection of his rod and staff, what has happened to his people before will never ever happen again. And in response to this, the Jews pick up stones to stone him. 
Now, to a very small degree, to a lesser degree, I've experienced this sort of reaction in my own ministry at different places and at different times. There was a time in my life, in my ministry, when I preached with great zeal and passion that sheep could in fact lose their salvation. They could in fact kick and fight and scream and find some way to get out of the shepherd's hands. And when I preached those things in certain communities, they were, the message was received with shouts of amen. People love to hear the fact that they could lose their salvation. And then by God's grace, I learned the truth and repented and started preaching that the shepherd could not lose any sheep. And that message was often rejected with, yeah, but what about this? Now, as I said earlier, we want to tackle this question today, but first we need to deal with some other things in this text. So we'll come back to it in just a moment. Jesus says to these guys, I did many good works, and for which of them are you going to stone me? And they say, well, not for any of the good works. I mean, those were good works. We're going to stone you because of blasphemy. Because you are a mere man, and you make yourself out to be God. That's why we're going to stone you. So you can imagine these guys, their stones are in their hands. The temple must have been a rocky place because stones are always readily available. <laughs> so they're ready. They're, they're, they're locked and loaded. They're about to fire off on Jesus. And he's like, time out. Don't the scriptures say that God said to some people, you are gods? And everyone has to stop and think about it. Now he's quoting a very obscure passage that comes from Psalm 82. I want to read a portion of Psalm 82 so you'll get a flavor for this. In Psalm 82, Asaph says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the needy. Rescue the weak. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God's Son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled over what this psalm means. Who are these gods? Are there other gods out there and God is just meeting with them? Or are these gods men? They're men. They're mortal. But they're called gods because God gave them His Word. These are the prophets, the priests, and the kings of Israel. They've come into the divine council to learn God's will, to execute His will, to apply His will to His people, and yet they fail again and again and again. And God is disturbed with them. He's troubled with them. And so He tells them that they will die like any prince. 
But Jesus' point is that God called these men gods. And they were called gods because they had a special relationship to him and his word was put in them. Now I grant to you that the theological case that Jesus makes from this psalm is very complex and very deep and more than likely the majority of the people standing there were like, yeah, we don't really get what you're saying. Much like we feel in this moment. It seems so abstract to us. But his point is simply this. His point is simply this. Claiming to be a God is not a blasphemous offense if it's true. If you are God, you're not lying. You're not speaking evil of God. You're telling the truth. And in fact, for Jesus, it would have been a lie to say otherwise. And so Jesus is explaining that as the Word made flesh, as God in the flesh, He has every right to declare Himself to be the Christ, the Son of God. His claims are true. He is the true and better God, the Word made flesh for the life of the world. And to make sure that they understood that he did not stutter and that he did not misunderstand or misapply God's word, he says to them, the scripture cannot be broken. In other words, I'm standing on God's word when I tell you this. So he declares that God was his father and that he was the son of God. And he gives us evidence for the truth of this claim, the miracles, the signs, and the wonders that he has performed in the name of the Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit. His truth claims are right and good and true. He says, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, don't believe me. But if I am doing the works of my Father, you better believe me. This is a right or wrong issue. This is a heaven or hell matter. Now one of the saddest things Jesus has ever said to anyone appears in this text. And one of the things he says to them is, the reason you don't listen to me, the reason you don't hear my voice, is because you're not my sheep. If you were my sheep, you would listen to my voice. You would heed my call, but you don't because you're not my sheep. And this is an important thing for us to get our minds around as well. Because we live in a world, in a religious context, where everyone assumes that everyone is equally fine, equally good, or standing on equal ground. Or that people are neutral, and then they either become a sheep by listening to Jesus and obeying Him, or they become a goat by not listening to Him and disobeying Him. But Jesus is looking at a group of men, and He's been fighting with them and arguing with them over and over again, and He says to them, here's the bottom line, guys. The reason you are rejecting me, the reason you want to stone me, the reason you're trying to arrest and kill me, is not because I'm in the wrong, but because you are. I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd of the sheep, but you're not my sheep. What's curious to me is that charge, that accusation seemed to have gone right past them because they don't respond to that. They don't even try to defend themselves by saying, we are the sheep, the sheep of God's pasture. They're so angry at this point that Jesus has rattled their cage that they just want to rid the earth of him. So they're missing the point of his teaching. 
he offers this great promise to them. The promise is that for all of his sheep, he is the shepherd. And for all of the sheep that he gathers up in his arms, they will be safe and secure forever. No other shepherd, no other king has been able to make that promise and keep it for them. And instead of them embracing that promise, praising God that this great truth has come to them, they take up stones to stone him. I want to point out on the side that I love the fact that Jesus resisted arrest in this story. He escaped their hands. It's a different way to say he resisted arrest. So imagine what that looked like. Do you see the, the conflict of the image? He's just said, I'm the good shepherd. If, if I take you into my hands, I'm never going to let you go. If you get in my hands, you're going to be safe and secure forever. That's what it's like to be in God's hands. What's it like to be in man's hands? Man's hands are weak. They take hold of God in the flesh, but they can't hang on to Him. You see? They grab hold of Jesus, but He escapes. He gets away from them because they don't have what it takes to get a tight grip. That should indicate for you a way to answer this question that nags your heart. Can I lose my salvation? I would reject the form of the question, but if I deal with the question the way it's posed, I'll say, yes, you can. If it's your salvation, you'll lose it. If it's up to you, you'll lose it. If it depends on your ability, you'll lose it. If it's up to you to grab hold of Jesus and take hold of Jesus, to capture Jesus, to invite Jesus into your heart... You'll lose him because you don't have what it takes. Your hands are too weak. Your grip isn't strong enough. Your arms aren't long enough. You don't have what it takes to hang on to Jesus. But thank God that that's not the gospel. See, in the story, we see that this is what legalism does. Legalism tries to take hold of Jesus. I'm going to capture him. And I'm going to make him my Savior. And I'm going to make him my Lord. Or in their case, I'm just going to kill him. But whatever it is, legalism never has what it takes to hang on to Jesus. So it's a terrible question. Can I lose my salvation? I wrestled with that question for many years, as many of you have. Kept me up at nights. I lost a lot of sleep. I don't sleep well anyway, as you know, but this was a new thing. It would keep me up at nights even beyond my normal insomnia. Can I lose my salvation? And I would come back to the answer. Each time would be, yes, I can. I think I can do something to make Jesus drop me. That was my view. It's not the gospel. So in God's grace, several years ago, I came across someone who posed the question in a different way, which is what I want to do for you now. The question should never be, can I lose my salvation? It should never be, can a Christian lose his salvation? Terrible question. The question we should be asking is the one that's based on the answer given in our story. The question should be, can Christ lose a Christian? 
Can the shepherd lose any sheep? That's the question we should be asking. And that question is so much easier to answer, isn't it? What is the answer to that question? Can Christ lose a Christian? Can the shepherd lose any sheep? What does he say? I will lose none of them. They will never perish. Now that's the word of Christ. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. And no one will snatch them from my hand. So what is Jesus saying to us? If you come to me, if you listen to me, if you heed my voice, you will be safe and secure forever. How? Because you're going to be in his hands. And he and you will be in the Father's hands. And no one will ever be able to snatch you from his hands. So to put it this way, Jesus is saying, the devil or man can have you when they can get through the hands of the Father, through the hands of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit, then they could have you. If you can find someone strong enough to overcome your Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, then they deserve to have you. But in that case, the triune God wouldn't be God, would He? Something else or someone else would be God. And I know what many of us think. You think, yeah, but what if I do X, Y, or Z? Can't I then lose my salvation? What if I'm caught in the middle of a terrible sin? What if it's discovered that I have a secret addiction? What if I don't tithe the way I should? What if I can't break this bad habit? What if I have doubts about the gospel? What if I don't understand everything about Jesus? What if I have questions about my community? What if I don't understand my parents? What if I don't understand the Bible? What if I don't pray enough? What if I don't try hard enough? And on and on we go with all of the what-ifs. And can I simply say to you who wrestle with that day by day, what if I don't do enough? Let me just say, you will never do enough and it's okay. But you're looking at the wrong thing. All you need worry about ever in your life is, did Jesus do enough for me? Has Jesus done enough for me? Does he really love me? Did he really lay down his life for me? And the answer is yes. Yes, he did. He laid down his life for you, and he took it up again for you. So once he's laid his hands on you, once he's brought you in close, he's going to keep you there. Do you fight? Do you wriggle? Do you resist at times? I do. Sometimes I wonder if he's holding me the right way, right? We all do that. 
No one can snatch you from his hands. And that no one includes you. Isn't that good news? See, that's good. That's the gospel. Now, here in a moment, we're going to sing a song that, uh, that we've sung several times. And I know that you think about what you're singing, but let me just highlight something for you. This next song is called House of God Forever. We're going to sing that at some point in our service. And I want you to think about what you're singing. I want you to sing with confidence. If you believe Christ, you can sing with confidence. I'll be in the house of God forever. My Old Testament professor, Dr. Green, commented on Psalm 23. And here's how he translates that very difficult passage in Hebrews. In Hebrew, the passage in Psalm 23 is difficult. It says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And that's beautiful. But the Hebrew language is a little bit more difficult because it says, I will return to the house of the Lord for many days. You know what that means? It means that sometimes we don't stay put. We wonder. He goes and gets us. He brings us back. We stray. He gets us. He brings us back. We don't want to stay home. He gets us. He brings us back. Why? So that we may dwell in the house of, the God, in the house of God forever. You see, if it's up to you, you're not going to stay in his arms. You're not going to stay at home. You're not going to stay put. You're not going to be content with green grass and still water. You're going to want something else. And you'll go searching for it. But because he loves you, he will go out with the rod and staff of his cross and he will catch you. And he will bring you back to his house and seat you at his table and say, this is where you need to eat. This is where you find grace. This is where you find mercy. Let me put some oil on your wounds. Let me take care of those ear mites. You're not listening to me very well. Let me get rid of those ticks and those burrs and those thorns. And let me remind you there are wolves and dragons and serpents out there. It's a dangerous world. So come home. Come back home and come to the table and eat with your shepherd king. That's what you do. So that's what Jesus was dealing with. So he went across the Jordan here. At the end of the story, we learn that he goes back and he crosses the Jordan. So he has to go into exile. Why does he go into exile? Because that's where the lost people are. That's where his sheep are, and he's got to go find them. And so he goes out looking for them across the river. And John tells us many believed in him. See, sometimes in these stories, all we hear about is how crazy people reacted to Jesus and rejected him. But then in the story we see, no, something else was happening. Many believed. He's gathering his flock. And I hope you're numbered among those who believed. Let us pray together. Oh God, you are our shepherd. You are the one who gives us life. You are the one who defends and protects us against evil and harm. And it is to you that we tune our hearts and lift our eyes and reach out even now. We pray that you will deliver us from evil. There are many dangers around us. We bring some trouble on ourselves. Others bring it to us. I pray that the Good Shepherd will come and deliver us with his rod and staff and comfort us. 
It's in His name we pray. Amen. Thank you.